Proverbs 16.9, it says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Sometimes God has a way of changing our plans. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that before? You, know, you have something in mind, you have a goal, you have something set before you, and God says, nope, you know, we're going this way. I, I picture the, uh, the, the train, the guy driving the train, and an engineer down the track, he goes and he pulls that big lever, and the train track switches over. At that point, there's not much that the train can do except go down that new road. Right? This week, I uh, came here Thursday morning, as I do usually early, to spend the day in the Word. And John 11 was where we were supposed to be, and I just kind of stared at John 11 and scribbled some stuff and then crossed it out and scribbled some stuff and, and crossed it out, and it was just hitting a wall. And uh, finally, I said, i got to put this thing down and do something else because I'm not getting anywhere. So I put the sermon down, and I had... Lord's Supper service and men's breakfast and stuff to do. So I started working on that and got to First Peter, which is where we're at in the men's breakfast, and said, aha, this is the passage. This is where I'm supposed to be. So we are departing this morning from John 11, and we're going to spend our time in First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are uh, Bibles scattered around the church. They are maroon or burgundy, and you can find this text on page 1204 if you're using the Pew Bible. It's kind of difficult when you just jump into the middle of a book. You know, the context hasn't been set. So I want to just briefly say that as Peter opens this book, as you turn there, he writes to what he calls elect exiles. Elect exiles. And he simply means believers, those chosen by God, and he calls them exiles. Uh, and his, and his, his understanding there is that they are sojourners. They are people that are in a foreign land, and it is a land that they find themselves in that is hostile to the Christian faith. And I believe that much of what Peter is writing about is faithfulness while in hostile territory. What it means and what it looks like to be faithful to Christ living in a hostile land. Now, their form of persecution or hostility may be more than what we experience today, at least in America. But we see that from the beginning of the church, by and large, this has been the experience that Christians have dealt with. We are exiles living in a hostile land. We are pilgrims that are passing through. While we, I believe, at least, I assume, everyone here is a citizen of the United States of America, our true citizenship is in heaven. Amen. And because of that, our true and first allegiance must always be first to the kingdom of God, then to whatever land we may find ourselves in. And I believe as we jump into this passage here, that Peter's words can kind of help us think through our own situation as we find ourselves in a more and more hostile environment where the things that we believe are being opposed, um, called hateful, called unloving, all sorts of things legal sanctions being brought against churches and whatnot. We're going to read these words of the Apostle Peter. We will start in chapter 2 and verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you, and sorry, just before that, he was speaking to unbelievers or about unbelievers, the people that stumbled over Christ, that were disobedient to the Word. And he turns back to these elect exiles, to the church, and he says, But you, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we come now to the reading and proclamation of your word And we pray to You, O God, because we need You. We need to be instructed and we need understanding by Your Spirit. I need You to speak through me because I am a feeble man and ask just Your blessing on this time. I pray that You would encourage, that You would challenge, that You would give us the faith to believe, to respond, to be obedient. Help us, O God. Fill us, we pray. Use this time Bless the the, the preaching of Your Word. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do with this passage is we think about uh, what it means to be faithful in a time of hostility, how we can function in a a day and age where Christianity is becoming more and more not the norm. It's becoming more and more something that, that, that is to be disregarded and set aside by the culture, not by the church, but by the culture. I want to ask three questions of this passage to help us see what Peter has to say. Three questions of this passage. And they're simple questions. You can see them there on your handout. Who am I? Or if I could say this corporately, who are we? What should I then do? And how should I then live? Who am I? What should I then do? And how should I then live? So the first question we're going to ask of this passage, who am I? And let's turn back to the word there in verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, first off, I want us to see, and you probably caught it yourself, that this sounds like the nation of Israel. This sounds like the way that God would speak of the people of God in the Old Testament, and that's because it is. Peter has taken common terms that were used for the people of God in the Old Testament, and he is applying them here to the church. Now, just to make sure that we understand this is written to the church, this is written to Christians, look in chapter 1, verse 1, he writes to elect exiles. The elect are God's people. Uh, He goes on and he gives this, this Trinitarian greeting to the, according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. So he greets them in this Trinitarian form. Uh, you can go down to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think it's plain that he speaks to Christians, to the church, And he applies these names of Israel to the church itself. And and, and what he's doing here is he's showing us the continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament church. 
he's showing that this he's representing us all, them and us, as one, right? As one people that have faith in God. Paul helps us understand this in Galatians 3, where he says, There is neither Jew or Greek, verse 28 of Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is not even male or female. He says, You are all one in Christ Jesus. Then get this. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Paul there says to the church, if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, then you are actually one of Abraham's offspring and you are heirs to the promises that God gave Abraham. You see the the continuity, the unity between us and the nation of Israel. We are all the one people of God. And he started off there and he said, you are a chosen race. The word there that he used in the Greek is eklektos, uh, that word chosen. And it is the same word that he used in chapter 1, verse 1, when he called them elect exiles or chosen exiles. And it means simply to be chosen by God, to be elected by God. It is that which God has chosen. Listen to this idea taken from Deuteronomy 10, 15, Deuteronomy 10.15, it's the same idea that he uses here. It says, Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Do You see, this is something that God has done. God set His heart in love upon the people of Israel and He chose their offspring to be His people. In our passage and in Deuteronomy, God is the cause. He is the one doing the choosing and His people are the ones receiving the blessings of God's having chosen them. He says you're a chosen race. And this is you, Christian believer. You are part of a chosen race, a chosen people group. You've been brought into this new race of people. And this new race is those that have been saved, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as He placed His love upon Old Testament Israel, Christian believer, He has placed His love upon you and brought you into His family. He goes on to say, you are a royal priesthood. Christian, do you understand that you are a priest or a priestess? Now that might sound weird to Protestant ears, right? They're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we protested, our, our forefathers, our Protestant forefathers protested the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. There is no priesthood in the New Testament. We don't need all of that. But that is, that's his very point, that we don't need specific people, this second class of believers, this this heightened level that have a a different access to God that we have to go through. But he says, no, every believer is a priest, has full access directly to God. We don't need anyone but Christ to stand between us and God the Father. His point here is that every believer, whether a custodian or a CEO, whether a housewife or a car salesman or the most well-known, influential preacher ever to live, All have equal access to God and equal access to His throne of grace. Amen, indeed, because we are all priests 
before God. We all have that access. No one needs to go to a confessional. No one needs another man to mediate. But we all go to God directly through Jesus. He goes on and says, You are a holy nation. A holy people group. You have been marked off, set apart for the Lord as holy. As a people that are to be peculiar right, to the rest of the world. That we ought to stand out. We ought to be cut and different from what is common and normal in this world. Again, our Lord speaks in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Listen to this. This is the same language Peter is using. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all of the people on the face of the earth. God has called His church, His believers, to be a holy people gathered to Himself to image or to represent Him to a watching world that they might see us and see Christ in us. There might be some sense uh, of Jesus shining through us as our light shines, as, excuse me, as His light shines forth from us. And then He said, you are a people for His own possession. A people for His own possession. We now belong to Christ. We are His we have been called into service to God. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. He says, You are not your own. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. What is that price that was paid to purchase you? The blood of Jesus. Yes, what Jesus did at the cross. Amen. The precious blood of Christ, the invaluable life of our Savior, was that, was that infinitely valuable price that was paid, as Paul says, that we are no longer our own. We are bought by God, given to Him for service to Him. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul here is, is gathering the... Ephesian elders. He's been in Ephesus for three years. He's been ministering. They love him dearly. He's their pastor. He's their friend. And he is departing and he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he know, they know they'll probably never see him again. But he is compelled by the Spirit to go. He knows the chains and shackles await him. And they're weeping. They're grieved. And he gives them these words in Acts 20.28. 20, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. You see that claim that Christ has ownership over His church. We are not our own, but we have been bought into His family, into His people. Jesus bought and paid for the church with His very life. And we then now are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. The Bible calls us bondservants. And what is a bondservant? It is a free and willing slave. A bondservant is one that gives themselves to their master. A bondservant would take a, a, an earring, basically. They'd have a, a, a loop, a thing put through their ear. Their ear would be on a post and they would hammer 
a nail through their ear and it would mark them off that I am I am the property of my master. But it, it was a it was a willing submission because their master cared for them well and gave them the ability to have a life and to provide for themselves. And so, too, as as Christians, we are those that have given ourselves as bondservants to Christ and we do so willingly. We serve our master with joy and we would have it no other way. We must know these truths. These are, these are great uh, passages to, to preach to ourselves, to recite to ourselves. I am a member of a chosen race. God has placed His love upon me before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. I'm a royal priest. Not because of anything in me, but God has made me a man that has full and total and unfettered access to God. I can go to God and you, Christian believer, can go directly to the throne of grace. That is a staggering thing that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, hears our prayers. Not only does He hear them, but He cares to hear them. He cares to answer them. He is intimately involved in all of our lives. We are members of a holy nation. Those that are marked off by God and for God, a people for His own possession. That is who we are in Christ. So to answer the question, who am I? That is who we are. But what should we then do? What should we then do in light of that? Well, Peter helps us here in verse 9, the second half. He says all those things, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for His own possession, that... And I said this with the guys yesterday. I'm, I'm going to add a so there. Now don't stone me for adding to the Word of God. Uh, if you notice in your Bible, if you have a King James or a New King James or a New American Standard, I believe all those do it. Uh, if there's a word in italics, what does that mean? It's added, right? It's added. It's not in the original languages. The translators put it there so that the translation from Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew makes more sense in English. So when you see an italic, italicized word, it means this word was added for clarity. So I'm adding a so for clarity. I'm doing the same things the translators do. Um, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter tells us this is who you are. Now this is what you are to do. Proclaim the excellencies, the beauties, the perfections of Him who has called you. Beloved, once you were not a people, and I was not among a people, not this people, Right? We were like that straying sheep that had wandered off in the woods, ready to get plucked up by a wolf, right? ready to fall into a ditch. We had no one to lead us, no one to guide us, no one to care for us, no one to nurture our souls, no one to feed us. And then Christ came along and He brought us into His fold. The Good Shepherd called us by His Word and we responded in faith. And now, He says, you are God's people. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people, and you once had not received mercy. Whether you were five or fifty, before you knew Jesus, you had not received mercy. 
and the full penalty of your sin was yours to experience. The full weight of God's wrath would have been yours. But God, in His great mercy, reached out into our lives and He showed us this abundant mercy that the Bible says is new every single day. Once you had not received mercy, but now God has relented His wrath from you and placed it on His Son, and you have received mercy. Did you see this great assumption that, that Peter made? There is a great assumption in his words. And that is simply this, that Christ is excellent, that He is worthy of being proclaimed, that there are excellencies in God that we should speak of, that we should tell of. This is really, I believe, God's call to all Christians. It's not a call just to pastors or evangelists or that super charismatic guy in the church that loves to talk to strangers and has no problem with it. Right? This is God's call for all of us. Mark 16, 15, the very end of the Gospel of Mark. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Yes, He said that to the apostles. But could those 11 guys there, could they go to the whole of creation and preach the Gospel? Hardly. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. I don't think we often think of the Gospel, our proclamation of the Gospel in this sense, but listen to the words of Paul. 17.30 in the book of Acts. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. The Gospel is more than an invitation. It is a command. The Creator of the universe calls everyone to turn from their sin. And then Romans 10.13, a dear text. A dear text that we love as evangelicals. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes, amen. But it doesn't stop there. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, the good news. This is our sending right here, the church, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us. He is the excellent one that ought to be proclaimed. I want to ask a question, and I'm asking this question. There's two bone thumbs being back at myself first. How can we experience such a great salvation and not be compelled to speak of Christ? How can we know the mercies of God, the riches of His blessings in Christ, and not be compelled to speak of Christ? How many times have I, personally, myself, out of fear or cowardice or indifference, or, man, I'm just trying to get where I'm trying to go, and not open my mouth when an opportunity was there to share the truth with a soul that was perishing right there before me. Whether it was fear, maybe there's going to be an awkward moment. What if it gets weird? What if I talk about Jesus and they're not thrilled about it? They're probably not going to be thrilled most of the time, right? Unless they're a Christian, or God just grants you this guy that is just desperate for Jesus, and you get that 
moment, they're probably not going to be thrilled to hear about Christ. But they should be. And we know that they should be. And if they would believe, they would be thrilled to know Him. How many times have I been indifferent to the perishing soul in front of me? So what are we to do? Peter says, open our mouths for Christ. Proclaim His excellencies. Tell of His beauty, of His perfections. Tell of the patience that He showed you. His long-suffering as you lived a life of sin, rejecting Him, or as you've strayed and struggled, and He is patient, always there with His hands, His arms wide open. Tell of His mercies that are new every single day, the times that you should have got so much more that you did not receive. Tell of His faithfulness that He has proved Himself, as we just sang, or and or and or as He, as he proved Himself to be faithful. Tell of His truth that has shaped and renewed your mind, that has sanctified you and grown you. Tell of His freedom that He gives from sin. Tell of the hope that He offers, the glory that awaits all believers in eternity. Beloved, this is a call that He has placed on all of our lives. Not just for evangelists, not just for pastors, but it is a call to the church to tell of Christ, to tell of His grace and the judgment that is to come. Because that judgment is what makes grace so amazing. Right? If we never get to the hard stuff, then grace is kind of, eh, it's a big deal. I don't really need Jesus. So who are we? We're a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. What should we then do? We should proclaim His excellencies. Tell of Christ to any that would listen. And number three, Peter, how should we then live? How are we to live? Verse 11 of 2 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First thing that I want to point out from that verse. Actually, let me backtrack there. You see the apostle, he gives this impassioned plea to his readers. I urge you, I beg you. The, new, the, the King James says, I besiege you. This is an earnest appeal, a warning, a strong plea. He says that you would abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. According to Peter, according to inspired Scripture, there is a war that is taking place inside of us daily. The passions or the desires of the flesh, that's that human nature, that sinful nature, that old man, are at war with the Spirit. And they want to win. right? They want to be satisfied. They want to indulge themselves. They want to have their way. Paul helps us to understand this in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 17. He says that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. It's water and oil to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Beloved, while you and I have been made new in Christ, 
That old man, that old person, he is not yet completely dead. And he needs to be daily put to death, put back in the grave. We must daily die to ourselves and put on Christ, as Paul says. Die to the things that our carnal heart wants and to live for Jesus, making no provisions for the flesh. Listen to, to the Apostle. I love Romans 7 because we see there that we all struggle. Even the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. And he went through it. right? He suffered for Christ. Well, listen to his words in 7.15 of Romans. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Amen. Indeed. Anyone else experience this? I want to do this. Why am I doing this again? Lord, I want to be slow to speak and slow to anger. I want to stop blurting the first thing that comes to my mind because I know it's hurtful and I don't think about what I say. And then someone says something and there I go, opening my mouth again. Or maybe I want to be honest and, and trustworthy and I want to be a, a person of integrity. And then I find myself telling half-truths and skating around the whole truth to paint myself in a better light. Maybe I just want to be content with God's good gifts in my life and I pray to that end. And then you find yourself lusting after things that you don't have, things that your neighbor has, whether that's material things or maybe it's a, a perceived sense of ease. You know, why does John over here, he's, he's got it easy. He never struggles. He's always blessed. He takes a vacation every month. My life is hard. Right. Peter says, I urge you, I plead with you, I besiege you as sojourners, as exiles, those passing through in a foreign land. Do not give in, but fight the good fight. What are these passions of the flesh, deeds of the flesh? Multiple texts can help us, but Galatians 5.19 I think is enough. Paul writes that the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. There is a daily internal battle where the flesh wants to rear its ugly head. And if we are not diligent to mortify it, to put it to death, then we will lose. Anger will creep up. Jealousy will creep up. Rivalries will happen. Dissensions, idolatry, impurity, and things like these, as Paul says. All of these sins, it says in, in uh, the book of Genesis, are crouching at the door waiting to have us, waiting to master us. But Peter says we must abstain. And that word that he uses in the Greek, it means to stay at a far distance from, to keep yourself not even close to these desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, but to keep yourself from them. Why do we do that? Why do we fight so hard? Why do we strive for this? It says in verse 12, that God might be glorified. That God might be glorified. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you notice that, that the apostle there, he uses again, he uses that Gentile word, but now he's marking off not Jew and Gentile, but church 
He speaks to Christians and he uses the term Gentile as everyone else. Non-believers. Notice what he said. First thing that stands out to me here. They will speak against you as evildoers. They will speak against you as evildoers. He doesn't say what if. He says when they do. You know, you don't have to look far today to see hatred for Christians. We're called bigots. We're called intolerant. We're called hateful. We're antiquated, right? We use this ancient book. I mean, come on. How, how dense can you be? The Bible? Really? We, we are told that we hate homosexuals, that we hate women. We're told all sorts of things, right? And I want to just say something here on a little tangent. And hopefully this is obvious. But if I hate a person because of their sin, then I'm actually in sin and I need to repent. Right? If we hate people just because of their sin, then we are actually in sin ourselves and need to repent. If I hate a person because they're gay, or God forbid, a liberal, and I, mean, and I, say, that, I say that sarcastically, right? but when we look at people, they don't think what I think. God, just get rid of them all. right? If I think like that, then I'm in sin myself. And I need to repent. But the other side of that where that, where that thinking does not go, that if I go to a person and tell them what the Scripture teaches, that if you continue to live in a certain lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, that is not hate. That is one of the most loving things that we could possibly do. It would be hateful to see people perishing and say bye-bye and not try to help, not try to speak out. That is not hate, that is love. But of course, by a world today, it is, being, it is being labeled as hate, right? To speak to a person about sin, about what the Scripture says, that is, that is hateful. But we would say, no. We love the soul, but we speak the truth to the life and where it will send you, what the result may be. But Peter is clear. They will call you evil. They did it then, they're doing it now. It's not an, it's not an if, it's a when. It is a fact. It's because of that, abstain from the passions of the flesh which are waging war against your soul. Fight to be faithful to Christ, is what he says. Fight to be faithful to Christ. Fight to be a man or a woman of integrity so that they will see you. It will be evident that God is at work in you and God will be glorified. And he says this word, on the day of visitation. It's an interesting word. It's, it's in, I think, most of the major translations. I believe the NLT said, on the day of his judgment. But the word is not that specific. It actually could mean, it means God drawing near. Could mean in judgment or it could mean in mercy. It's not defined here. Um, so I think it probably means, at least mostly, judgment day. Right, the end, when he visits, his ultimate day of visitation is the second coming. Right? But I also believe because it's not as specific, he doesn't say is this a negative or a positive, that it could also mean him drawing near to a specific person in mercy. On the day he might share his word, that, that he might reveal himself through someone to a non-believer. And as you live, Christian, as we live, as he's called us to here, as we live a life faithful to Christ, as a testimony, not as a hypocrite, 
when God draws that sinner near, when the gospel is shared with a non-believer, what is the reference that they will have for a Christian? What is that thing in their mind that they're going to think of when they think of a Christian? And my response is this. May it be us, and may we be faithful. May it be us that they think of, and may we be faithful. Let me bring this all together. As sojourners, as exiles, as pilgrims, passing through, living in a land, as Jesus says, we are of this world, or we are in this world, but we are not of it. We are not marked by the things that mark this world, but we are marked by our citizenship in heaven, in our allegiance to the kingdom of God. As sojourners living in a hostile territory, number one, know who you are. Know who you are. You are a people for His possession. You are no longer your own, but you've been bought with a price. You've been chosen by God. A chosen race. He has placed His love upon you. Yes, you. Receive that grace. You are a priest. Right? A priest. Don't go get a collar. That would be weird. But you are a priest, meaning you can go to God on your own. You don't need another man. You don't need another person. You don't need a a certain special church to go to God. But you can, at any time in the day, in your life, go directly to God. And you're a member of a holy nation. God has marked you off for His purpose. He has set you aside for the work that He has prepared for you to walk in and to do. Number two, tell of who He is. Tell of who He is. I want to, again, just ask a simple question. How can we partake of such a great salvation and not be compelled to tell of Christ? And number three, fight to be a faithful witness. Fight to be a faithful witness. Did you notice the language that Peter used? Let me find it. He said that we should abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. He's using this language of war. And what do you have to do to win a war? You have to fight. You have to fight. Or you have to be offensive. You have to get into the battle. To win a war, you must fight. And we fight that the world would glorify God and that they would do it because they saw Christ in us. Because they saw Christ in us. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we do thank You.